Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello everyone, welcome to Technique. I'm Sam Fry and this is a podcast where we talk to artists about how they use technology. Today's topic is all about data privacy, which is how our individual data is being used online. We have two fantastic guests today, which we will get into straight after this theme tune. Brilliant. Well, today I am interviewing two different people. The first one is Brett Gaylor. Now, he is a documentary filmmaker. However, you don't necessarily need to go to a cinema to watch one of his documentaries. In fact, you're much more likely to find them online. Here's Brett introducing himself. My name is Brett Gaylor. I'm a filmmaker based in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. And at Mozilla, I'm our commissioning editor for advocacy media. And I also produce media for Mozilla as well. So, as you probably caught from Brett's introduction, he has two roles. He is a documentary filmmaker, often looking at the concepts around the open internet and data privacy. For instance, his documentary called Do Not Track is an interactive web documentary series all about internet privacy, and it uses some of your data in your browser to actually curate the documentary so your data is being used within it. But he also has a second role, which is working for Mozilla. Now, you might know Mozilla because of the Firefox browser, but Mozilla do a bit more than that. They're actually all about the open internet movement. So I met Brett and Han at MozFest, which is the world's leading festival for the open internet movement run by Mozilla which happened to be held in London this year at Ravensbourne College. In this episode, we talk about data privacy and how every individual can know a little bit more about how their data is being captured and used and where the ownership of that data lies. So let's go to the interview with Brett, where I started by asking him a little bit about his own documentaries. My name's Brett, and I'm a Canadian documentary filmmaker. I've been making films about the internet for, I don't know, about a decade. I made a film in 2008 called RIP, a remix manifesto. At that time, the issues around the internet, one of the most critical ones was around copyright, around intellectual property. So for the eight years prior to releasing that film, it took me a long time to make it too. It took about six years. The big disruptive thing was how the internet was allowing people to freely share everything, really, but it was having quite a disruptive effect on the music and then the film industries. And I became interested in this after going to school and being of that generation that used Napster for the first time. Probably nobody listening to this podcast has ever used it, but it was actually pretty great. The thing about Napster was if you wanted to download a a song, you could also look at what that other what other songs that person had. So it was sort of like digging through these record crates but then one thing would lead to like the best record collection of your entire life and you just gobbled it all up so I was listening to a ton of music at the time it was really positive and fun and there was no other way to get digital music at that time which is another thing that's probably hard for people to identify with in 2017 but you know even copying from a CD to the computer to mp3 files 
that was quite revolutionary. And when Apple came out with the iMac, they actually had this phrase of rip, mix, burn to kind of sell to consumers this idea of copying music, putting it together in a new way, making your mixtape. And that was sort of part of the zeitgeist at that time that you had people sharing music, but you also had people creating new kinds of music with this music that they were sharing. In the film, we followed a a remix artist named Girl Talk who was making these songs out of sort of hundreds of different songs that he chopped together, used tiny little fragments of them, and they were called mashups. It was sort of an early 2000 form of music. A lot of it was actually came from here, as a lot of music does, came from the UK across the pond in the early, early 2000s. uh, They were making these mashups like Missy Missy Elliott versus Joy Division, let's call it, Love Will Tear Us Apart with Get Your Freak On, uh, Love Will Freak Us Apart. So anyway... Made that film, and from that, you know, being involved with this remix culture, I became exposed to Mozilla. Around 2004, 2005, with the release of Firefox, they really challenged Microsoft's monopoly uh, on the web because Microsoft had this strategy to try and completely dominate the browser market by shipping Internet Explorer with Windows, and Firefox sort of provided an alternative to that, and it was wildly popular and awesome, and so they were releasing these new versions every, every so often. And one, the version around version four, for the first time, they included the ability to uh, have native video. And so people were watching video on in their web browser at that time, but they weren't actually using the web. They were using a technology called Flash, which you know is still still around a little bit. Um, but the problem with Flash was you couldn't. Um, sort of mix it with the rest of the page. It sort of existed in a little black box, we called it at the time. And so what, what would it be like if video could enjoy the same sort of first-class status as an image or a piece of text or a link? And you, what would that do to the sort of form of video on the web? And so with that new browser release, they were looking for ways to sort of showcase those potentials. So I came in to sort of lead a lab that um, did some explorations around that. And we we produced a library called Popcorn JS, and so some media producers would use that to create these sort of new experiences. We launched it here at Mozfest in I think 2012, 2013. A few years later, um, made an interactive documentary called Do Not Track that was about privacy and surveillance, and it used, you know, as an example of what films could, how they could be different if they were on the internet. They'd use bits of your own data uh, in a way that a movie couldn't. You know, it was like you couldn't actually include Sam, you don't have your Twitter ID on there. I don't know much about you, but, uh, you know, if you use Do Not Track, I might know where you're connecting from, what browser you're using, what you've watched in the last little bit, the cookies that your browser is connected to, and I could sort of make a unique film for you. And so that's what Do Not Track was. We released that serially, like, every two weeks in 2015 from April to June. And, yeah, 2017 at Mozilla, we're exploring... This issue of, is the internet now healthy? You know, that long story I just told you, 10 years ago, we thought that the internet was going to democratize everything. It was going to be, there was going to be no barrier between the consumer and the creator. It was going to be a return to sort of a folk culture where there were no gatekeepers, where everyone was equal. And it hasn't really turned out that way. And so we need to make media that still holds to that ideal. I and people use the word filmmaker because it's sort of 
it's a shorthand. People understand what that means. But I think of myself actually primarily as a documentarian, sort of a nonfiction storyteller. And that's common in a lot of the communities that I work with. You might have folks that might make a magazine. They might make films sometimes. When they release their films, they might also do a book. That's been kind of common in particularly the public interest filmmaking community, you know, for decades. So I come from a tradition and a vocation around social and politically motivated nonfiction storytelling. Those are the people that, you know, I was inspired by in high school and the films that I would watch. And that's sort of the studies that I pursued when I was in university. I have a BFA in film production from Concordia University and also met some mentors and a community of people there that were making films with lots of different communities. Some of those communities, you know, were, for instance, living on the street. And so we would work with them to provide them the means to participate in the internet too, which now seems like crazy naive. Maybe we should have done them a favor and connected them to some other, <laughs> some other network. I come from a community that works across lots of different formats. And so for me, the, the way that they came together was that I enjoyed working in a lot of different formats, but the subject that I wanted to comment about was mostly the internet. So it was like, how do I make films about the internet using the internet? And that might be the same preoccupation that another social documentary filmmaker might do if they were if they were making a film with a group of fishermen, for example. They might say, okay, I'm going to live in this community for a really long time to sort of build trust and to be part of the community and maybe I'll fish sometimes and, you know, they'll trust me more if I'm working with them. That's kind of an approach to making films. And so how do you make films about the internet, using the internet, and also films where you as the user can see yourself in it? I think there's two challenges there. One is that when you make interactive work, oftentimes you have to come up with an interface for that work. So, but that's, that's similar to you know a cinematographer who'd have to have the audience understand the system, what that means. You know, it didn't, wasn't that long ago that audiences didn't understand edits. You know, if you had you know, somebody in one scene and, and then you, you cut to somebody on the other side of the planet, they might not be able to put... They, they didn't always have the ability to put together that meant, oh, this person has traveled, <laughs> right? Like early films showed them making the complete journey. When you're making interactive work, it's similar that y- your interface becomes the system that the audience has to learn in order to to take part in your project. And so that's why with Do Not Track, it pretty much feels like a movie when you're watching it, except there's personalized elements. And so that was a very conscious choice that that shouldn't be too much interactivity when you, when you watch this. It should feel like a movie, but with certain bits of interactivity or personalization. I think the other challenge to what you just mentioned is that these days people are spending less and less time on what we used to call the open web. And the open web sort of refers to a web page that you own and you have complete control of the technology stack that puts that together. Nowadays, a lot of people spend time on Facebook and you don't own that platform. And they, that platform tells you the things that you can do on it and not the other way around. And humans have finite capacity for attention. So if they're spending all their time on Facebook, it's not like they also have time to just freely browse around the internet. So if you make work that you do own that technology stack, and Do Not Track was like that, we had to kind of design it from the, from the ground up, it's challenging to find those audiences. So you have to have some kind of relationship with these platforms if you want to reach people, or you have to rely on different marketing or press 
to get them. I could wave a wand, I probably would have done more user testing. And it's interesting, we tried to borrow from a lot of the approaches of sort of agile software development where you're sort of working in these sprints and you're iterating and getting feedback and then changing. But film production timelines don't really work like that. They are the classic waterfall uh, development model where first you write a script, then you shoot it, then you edit it, and then you push it out to the world. And it's if you have an insight at the last point, it's hard to go back and rewrite it, you know, by definition. <laughs> you're like, oh, like, maybe we could have this interview subject say something else. Well, it doesn't work that way. But in some senses, testing the interface could have been a good idea. And the way that we did some of that was in the development process of the film. So it, it went through the fairly traditional financing structure. So we worked with broadcasters from Arte, the National Film Board of Canada, Bavarian broadcaster called Bayreischer Rundfunk, as well as Al Jazeera, Radio Canada, and Swiss, Swiss television. So we had to sort of tested in the market, if you will, of like, do you understand what this is? And so there was definitely iterations that happened there, but we could have put it in front of more people. The funnest part, or one of the most fun parts of Do Not Track was that it actually asked you to sign up at the end of it. So we focused a lot of our marketing efforts at the first, on the first episode. So because we had the partners that I just mentioned, a lot of them talked about it on television, or we had this strategy to work with bloggers, and publishers to promote it. And so there was this sort of really... Marketers talk about the top of the funnel, right? It's like where you're gathering the most people and then you convert at the bottom of that. And usually there's some percentage of people that are leaving that, so it looks like a triangle or a funnel. Once we people had signed up at the end, it was embedded in the narrative that, hey, if you sign up with us, we'll tell you a little bit more about what we know about you and we'll release an episode every two weeks. So once we had that, we kind of had our audience, right? Every two weeks they were they were coming back. And we did do some marketing on Facebook. And what, there was one interesting thing that an Arte did was they sort of simulated bots that were collecting information about people and then took out ads. I don't know how successful that was. We also just had traditional ad buys. But it was one interesting thing is that as we were putting out Do Not Track... That was around the time that Facebook really changed their algorithms so that unless you were paying, the likelihood of your content showing up on people's Facebook feeds was really low. Even if they had, people had decided to follow you, the algorithm was prioritizing content that decided to pay. And we were funded by public media, and we just, didn't have, we just couldn't compete with just the ads that were in there. I think we got some, it was popular on you know, platforms like Twitter, but I don't think social was our actual primary way that we, that we built an audience. Um, we sort of used it as more fodder for the film rather than as a, as a real distribution channel. We just didn't, we didn't have the money and, or the, really the expertise. You know, at, at Mozilla and my, my day job there, we do do a lot more sophisticated analysis and strategy for how to get identify audiences and get work out to them that tends to work with like really short form content that again can can be native in those environments and I think actually some now that I think about it we did some of the episodes we sort of we we exerted small bits of it and just had those as standalones that could play on the networks
I have to admit, Sam, that the first headlines we were getting were very much, you know, creeps you out with how much it knows about you, Vice. New York Times says you'll never look at your online profile again. And we just rolled with it. I mean, our hope was actually to build a sense of empowerment around these issues. And that's a real challenge in this space. If you're going to be looking at privacy and security media that's created about it, you'll find that, that a lot, oftentimes there, there really is this impulse to sort of shock and you know, build fear. And I think everybody that's in the space wants to actually build hope. And we're all kind of looking for the ways to do that, to reinsert this sense of possibility around the internet. And right now, world events are sort of whirling around this issue quite a bit. You know, there's this sense that, you know, governments are hacking one another. Governments are spreading sort of misinformation campaigns online. Oftentimes, the people who society should be taking the most care to protect are all often the most vulnerable because of these situations around privacy and security. And that doesn't feel good. Some of the solutions to this need to be societal and policy-based. Um, and those things can take time and... Lawmakers have a traditionally difficult time regulating the internet, both because people who make the internet resist it. You know, they, it's this the culture of Silicon Valley is sort of leave us alone. Uh, we'll play fast and what's the move fast and break things, and laws can get in the way of that. Though I think that nowadays people are realizing that the internet is so important to society that we actually do need to take care of it and set laws in place that produce positive outcomes. And it's early in that. And so I think that that's why some of the privacy work doesn't always feature that. So that's Brett talking about how he creates documentaries. However, you might be wondering, what's he actually do at Mozilla? Well, I asked him about that. So I'm a commissioning editor and media producer. So what a commissioning editor does is works with media producers to sort of, you know, commission work that helps tell these stories. We recognize that we're part of a broader movement. We can't tell all these stories ourselves. We recognize that there's a community of practice around this that we can engage with and that can actually provide a sort of network effect to our own efforts. So what I'm trying to get out of MozFest is bring some of that work that we have, uh, some of those makers that we have begun working with to here to experience MozFest, to interact with the public, to interact with other activists, with other advocates, with other makers, with the public. That's what we want to do here. I'm hopeful that people are understanding that their digital self is something that's worth protecting and worth understanding. I think that I did an interview with uh, somebody named Harlow Holmes, and the words she used about people's attitudes was often capricious. You know, we're, we're sort of like, oh, that's just, of course everybody knows what I shop, and who cares? You know, if you want to know what I had for dinner last night, then fill your boots, Google. I don't care, you know. But the reality is that that's a sort of a digital portrait of you that's increasingly being used to shape your experience on the internet and potentially just in society. And so I think people are becoming aware of that, and there's just a lot more work to be done to translate that into terms that lay people can understand and feel an emotional connection with. And so some of the ways that people do that is with like personalized experiences or you know, telling stories about real people rather than just tr constantly trying to explain the issues. That's sort of our role as media makers. So that was Brett Gaylor. He's absolutely awesome. And if you look up his documentary, Do Not Track, you can quite easily find it online, but it is do not track doc.com. You can actually see the full documentary series on there. I really liked it myself. Brett's got a good sense of humour and that humour comes through in some of the episodes. But the topic itself is really interesting and quite serious. 
After speaking to Brett, I also went and spoke to a lady called Hun. And Hun has made an online tool called Data Selfie. It's actually an extension to Chrome. And it helps you analyse how your data is being used on Facebook in particular. Now, here's the thing. Before meeting with Hun, I tried to look her up and find a bit of information about her. And I struggled. So I asked Brett a little bit about this. It's hard to find details about Hunt online. Yeah, it's because uh, she doesn't put a lot of information about herself on the internet. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> okay, so probably a bit hard to find her. But here she is introducing herself so you know for the future. Hi, I'm Hung. I'm a media maker and currently a Mozilla Media Fellow. And I'm interested in making media tools, experiences that can help people understand the value of their data. I spoke to Hun for a little while about how she created Data Selfie and why, and where she got her information from in the first place. So yeah, I'm Hung. I'm a, I would say, media maker. Maybe a little bit about my background. I did undergrad in journalism and media management, very, very broad. And I've just always been interested in this connection of media and society and maybe also more more specifically the influence that media has on society and that starts like really with just like times in history like how how for example Hitler used propaganda and, and media to influence the public and so I was always interested in that and so after my undergrad I went to New York and studied design and technology and that's when I really fell in love in making things specifically coding things and designing things, kind of the whole process of it. Yeah, but with my recent project, which is probably the most long-term project that I've had so far, it's called Data Selfie, and it's, it's a browser extension that I, that I created first for myself and now published for other people to use. And, and that's been very kind of interesting, the reactions that other people have to this and how they use it. I guess why I, I actually created that was more, I was very, or I'm still very fascinated by data and, and what data can reveal when, it, when you design it in a certain way, when you present it in a certain way. And, and so I was just very interested in what can my data on Facebook tell about me and so I created this this browser extension that helps me track myself on Facebook yeah so it's kind of this hard fascination about data but also seeing the risk and 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 dangers that come with that data selfie is really a data visualization of what Facebook might predict about your consumption but of course I cannot claim that this is Facebook's algorithm and this is what they use uh, specifically but the whole idea with data selfie is trying to simulate what a algorithm or an algorithm can predict based on on your consumption and then really to see kind of the real value of your data because when you i think a lot of people are aware that you are tracked on facebook but not many can really see what's the actual output and i cannot also really tell you that with data selfie but I can show you what other algorithms what other APIs what other technologies can get out of that data and so what I use is there are two APIs one is from Ibram Watson and one is from the University of Cambridge and so they're commercially available and that I think is also something interesting by using something that is out there you know that other entities businesses are also 
using this or, or can use this at least. How I chose what is tracked on, on Data Selfie, I was following a little bit what media was out there about explained what Facebook is doing or what they are even researching. So there were a couple things. For example, um, there was this very controversial research about how much you actually self-censor yourself on, on Facebook. So they were kind of seeing if you, when you type something, if you actually send it out. That means like they can still capture what you are actually writing when you're not hitting enter, right? And so I programmed the selfie to track whatever you type. doesn't matter if you send it to your friend or if you comment it publicly or not. The other thing, for example, that is kind of a core thing in data selfie is how long you look at a post. And that is actually something that Facebook published in, in their newsroom, in their like blog, I would say. They say, oh yeah, so FYI, you, we are taking the time um, you spend on posts into account for the algorithm, basically. Um, and so that's what I do too. It's a mixture of trying to simulate to be Facebook, but also just also an exploration of, imagine we're tracking this what could be the actual outcome or prediction that can be made based on that data. So why create Data Selfie? What was Han looking to try to achieve from building the Chrome extension in the first place? The mission of Data Selfie is really just to give, this, give you this awareness that you are being tracked. And I hope that people would apply this to any other service that they encounter online, right? Like just questioning now, when I just scroll this, do I already give data away and and that is the case in Facebook right even if you don't really like that much if you don't comment that much just scrolling through your feed watching a video that's already indicators um, who you are really and so I hope people uh, kind of apply this critical thinking to other services I'm thinking a, a lot about like what data I leave behind what comes to mind first is I really like registering domain names like I like to play a little bit with the ending, like DE or things like that. But I recently found out that, for example, if you have a .de built in, kind of like when you look at who is registry, you cannot see like my telephone number and address and so on. But .com or .net, that is not really protected in that way. And so I think I said before, yeah, questioning with anything that you encounter online, with any service that you, you buy or register for, what data uh, gets, gets out there with that. So that's the end of this month's episode. I'd like to thank, firstly, Han. Uh, so her full name actually is Han Do Ti Duk. If you want to be able to spell that and find her online, it's H-A-N-G-D-O-T-H-I-D-U-C dot D-E. She's actually a Mozilla Media Fellow. In fact, Brett is one of her lecturers, I believe. But her work, dataselfie.ie, is a really cool extension. And I had a go at it myself just to see what kind of data usage I was using. And I'd encourage you to do the same. And also, I'd like to thank Brett. So Brett Gaylor is his full name. As a reminder, you can find his documentary called Do Not Track online. That's do not track doc com. And I'm sure you'll learn a lot, but it's also pretty fun to play with and explore. 
Otherwise, that's the last episode of 2017. As always, if you've got any feedback for us, please get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Technique UK or otherwise get in contact on Create Hub. So it's create-hub.com and there is a comment section to contact myself. The music for today's episode came from Josh Woodford and Broke for Free. So thanks for both of them. And otherwise, enjoy the holidays, have a brilliant new year, and we will see you in 2018. Oh my gosh. Anyway, see you soon. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.